Decision Podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law. People v. Sergio Cerda, decided October 19, 2023. Lynch, J. On this appeal, the court is tasked with determining whether the trial court erred in applying New York's Rape Shield Law, CCPL 60.42, to exclude forensic evidence proffered by defendant to demonstrate that someone else caused the complainant's injuries. We answer that question in the affirmative and conclude that, under the facts of this case, the trial court's erroneous application of the Rape Shield Law deprived defendant of his constitutional right to present a defense. Accordingly, we reverse and order a new trial. 1. Defendant was charged with two counts of first-degree sexual abuse arising from allegations that he digitally penetrated his minor relative's vagina and touched her breasts. The prosecution's theory was that defendant, then over 60 years old, committed the crime when he was babysitting the complainant and two other younger relatives. According to the evidence at trial, one evening when these children were under his care, defendant was sitting next to the complainant on a couch where they were watching television with blankets draped over their laps. The complainant testified that defendant got under the blanket she was using, raised her right leg to her chest, rolled the bottom part of her pants leg up to her thigh, slid his hand underneath the rolled up portion, and placed a finger into her vagina, forcefully moving it in and out. The complainant also alleged that defendant fondled her breasts. Thereafter, the complainant went to the bathroom, locked the door, and texted her mother to come home, revealing that defendant had touched her inappropriately. Defendant took the stand at trial and denied the allegations, recounting that the complainant was angry at him for speaking ill of her father. Defendant testified that, after realizing that the complainant had remained in the bathroom, he went to check on her and she complained of a stomach ache. The complainant's relative was asked whether she saw anything at all unusual happen while she was sitting on the couch, and she answered in the negative, adding that defendant's hands were over the blanket. She was specifically asked whether she saw defendant touch the complainant and stated, to joke around with her, yes. A picture of the underwear complainant was wearing that evening was entered into evidence and showed a large, dark-colored, stain in the crotch area. The complainant underwent a sexual assault examination in the hours after the alleged crime. The prosecution introduced the medical records from this examination into evidence, which revealed at least two small petechiae, i.e., burst blood vessels, on the complainant's hymen, as well as a deep hymenal notch. Swabs of the complainant's vulva and vagina were also taken. A forensic examination of the evidence performed by the Nassau County Office of the Medical Examiner confirmed the presence of the complainant's saliva on the vulva swab. An analysis of a saliva mixture taken from a stain on the complainant's underwear revealed three contributors, the complainant and two unidentified males. The vaginal swab revealed prostate-specific antigen, which is an element of semen but can also be found in a number of bodily fluids. No spermatozoa were present in the vaginal swab and, thus, the presence of semen was not confirmed. At the start of the trial, defendant moved in Lamine for a ruling on the admissibility of the forensic reports. Defense counsel argued that the forensic reports were not the type of evidence barred by CPL 60.42 because the forensic findings offered plausible alternative explanations for the petechia the prosecution was seeking to attribute to him, indicating that they were consistent with masturbation or sexual contact with a third party. Defendant maintained that to exclude the forensic reports would curtail his ability to offer a sufficient and adequate defense. The prosecution opposed defendant's motion arguing that the reports were inadmissible because the forensic findings implied that the complainant had sex or oral sex with somebody, earlier and, thus, 
that she was promiscuous. The trial court denied defendant's motion and excluded the evidence under CPL 60.42, concluding that the theories advanced by defense counsel were very speculative and the forensic findings risked confusing the jurors. At trial, the prosecution presented the testimony of a pediatrician specializing in evaluating victims of sex abuse to establish that the petechiae on the complainant's hymen were consistent with digital penetration. In that respect, the expert confirmed that petechiae result from pressure or force, and that their presence on the hymen is an abnormal finding indicative of an injury. Although the expert had never seen petechiae during a normal genital exam, explaining that they were unlikely to result from masturbation or accidental injury, he conceded on cross-examination that intense vaginal rubbing or scratching with a lot of pressure could, in theory, cause petechiae to form. When asked whether petechiae can be visualized inside the vagina and not have anything to do with sexual abuse, the expert clarified that he had only seen it in the context of penetration, be that sexual abuse or sex. As for the deep hymenal notch, the expert noted that it was highly concerning for a penetration injury, however, because he could not determine that the notch went to the base of the hymen, he could not rule out that the notch was a normal part of the complainant's anatomy. In his opening statement, defense counsel commented that the jury would hear medical evidence from the complainant's sexual assault examination but that such evidence was scant and suggestive of a number of other types of activity or behavior that are completely innocent and that have nothing to do with defendant or the allegations that were made that night. Defense counsel reiterated this theme on summation, suggesting that the petechiae resulted from self-inflicted forcible rubbing or scratching due to irritation relating to fecal matter on the complainant's underwear. In her summation, the prosecutor stated that there was nothing in the medical record to support the contention that the complainant injured herself, emphasizing that such evidence doesn't exist and that it didn't happen. The jury convicted defendant of the sexual abuse charge related to the alleged digital penetration of the complainant's vagina, but acquitted defendant of the other count. The court sentenced defendant to three years of imprisonment followed by five years of post-release supervision. On appeal, the appellate division affirmed the judgment. Rejecting defendant's argument that the trial court improperly excluded the forensic evidence under CPL 60.42 and concluding that defendant was given ample opportunity to develop evidence at trial to support his defenses. The appellate division held that defendant's additional contentions were without merit. A judge of this court granted defendant leave to appeal. 2. Under CPL 60.42, evidence of a victim's sexual conduct is inadmissible in a prosecution for a sex offense defined in Penal Law Article 130 unless one of five enumerated exceptions applies, see People v. Halter, People v. Scott, People v. Williams, People v. Mandel, appeal dismissed and cert denied. In enacting CPL 60.42, the legislature was concerned that testimony about the sexual past of the victims of sex crimes often serves solely to harass the victim and confuse the jurors. Williams. Accordingly, CPL 60.42 put to rest the now discredited rationale that a victim's past unchastity is probative of present consent and recognized that such evidence is typically of little or no relevance and may seriously prejudice the prosecution of sex crimes. At the same time, the Constitution guarantees criminal defendants a meaningful opportunity to present a complete defense. Crane v. Kentucky, C. Chambers v. Mississippi, the right of an accused in a criminal trial to due process is, in essence, the right to a fair opportunity to defend against the state's accusations, People v. Devereux, People v. Boyd, People v. Spencer. This right does not give criminal defendants carte blanche to circumvent the rules of evidence, Devereux, see People v. Jincheng Lin. Nevertheless, a trial court must not apply evidentiary rules mechanistically to defeat the ends of justice, Devereux, citing chambers. Consequently, 
a blanket exclusion under CPL 60.42 which covered clearly relevant sexual conduct evidence would unduly circumscribe a defendant's constitutional right in this regard, People Ivanovic, appeal dismissed. Recognizing as much, the legislature enumerated five exceptions to CPL 60.42s evidentiary proscriptions. The first four exceptions allow evidence of a complainant's prior sexual conduct in narrowly defined factual circumstances, whereas the fifth is a broader interest of justice provision vesting discretion in the trial court, Williams. The exceptions, recognize that any law circumscribing the ability of the accused to defend against criminal charges remains subject to limitation by constitutional guarantees of due process and the right to confront the prosecution's witnesses. 3. Defendant argues that the forensic evidence was admissible under several of the exceptions set forth in CPL 60.42. We need not address every basis raised because we conclude that the trial court erred in denying admission of the evidence under CPL 60.42. 5. Under this subdivision, evidence of a victim's sexual conduct may be admitted in evidence during a sex crime prosecution when it is determined by the trial court after an offer of proof by the accused, to be relevant and admissible in the interests of justice, CPL 60.42, 5. Offer of proof is not a term of art but its generally accepted meaning, is to summarize the substance or content of the evidence, Williams. In his motion in the mine. Defense counsel delineated the findings contained in the forensic reports and explained how they constituted evidence of something other than, defendant having engaged in inappropriate and unlawful sexual activity with the complainant. This was a sufficient offer of proof under Williams. As for the relevance of the forensic findings, evidence is relevant if it tends to prove the existence or non-existence of a material fact, i.e., a fact directly at issue in the case, people v. Primo, see people v. Frumusa, Riar denied. We recognize that, in the interests of justice, evidence of a complainant's sexual conduct may be admissible in a sex crime prosecution if it is relevant to a defense, Scott, citing Ivanovic. In People v. Scott, this court considered whether, in a prosecution for both forcible and statutory rape, evidence of a complainant's sexual conduct with another individual at the same party at which the defendant was alleged to have raped the complainant should have been admitted under CPL 60.425. The court answered that question in the negative but agreed with the trial court that the complainant's sexual conduct, on the evening in question, would be relevant to defendant's defense if the people introduced evidence of her bruising caused by sexual contact and attributed such evidence to the defendant, ultimately noting that the people did not offer any such evidence of bruising in that case, Scott. Here, by comparison, the prosecution attributed the complainant's petechial injuries to defendant and had an expert testify that such injuries were consistent with the criminal conduct of which he was accused. Thus, the forensic reports, which contained findings that offered plausible alternative explanations for the petechial injuries, were relevant to defending against that theory, see Scott, Mem of Assembly Men Fink, under CPL 60.42, rebuttal of the people's evidence that, the accused was the cause of pregnancy, injury, or disease of the victim is allowed. Although trial courts may, of course, exclude relevant evidence if its probative value is outweighed by the prospect of, undue prejudice to the opposing party, confusing the issues or misleading the jury, primo, the evidence here, consisting of forensic findings, should have been admitted because it directly responded to the prosecutor's theory that defendant alone caused the complainant's injuries. The constitutional right to present a defense encompasses the right to put before a jury evidence that might influence the determination of guilt, Taylor v. Illinois, Accord Yovanovi. Defendant's entire defense was premised upon demonstrating that the complainant's allegations against him were untrue and that the petechial bruising was caused by her own actions or a third party. 
the forensic evidence confirming the presence of the complainant's saliva in the vicinity of her internal injuries, juxtaposed against the expert testimony that such injuries were consistent with digital penetration, speaks to an alternative, innocent explanation for the cause of the identified injuries and bears on the issue of guilt or innocence. The same may be said, albeit to a lesser extent, as to the detection of the male DNA in the mixed saliva sample and prostate-specific antigen in the vicinity of the complainant's injuries. We are mindful that the laboratory reports did not exclude defendant as a contributor to the male DNA detected from the complainant's underwear and that no further comparisons could be made from the mixed saliva sample. At the same time, the reports did identify two male contributors. Although the prosecution maintains that the forensic findings are inconclusive, far from exculpatory, and create more questions than the answer, the inferences to be drawn from the findings present an issue of weight for the jury to assess, not admissibility. See People v. Wesley. People v. Dakowski, People v. White. The dissent also deems defendants' offer of proof to be inconclusive, but it is neither the role of the trial court nor this court to make that assessment. There is a difference between determining whether evidence is relevant for purposes of applying the CPL 60.425 exception, and whether that same evidence is decisive or not. Relevance is for the court to determine, decisiveness for the jury. As difficult and traumatic as child sex abuse cases are, the operative point is that the proffered evidence is medical documentation in support of defendant's alternative theory for complainant's injuries. By pursuing this defense, defendant did not seek to use the forensic evidence in violation of the statute, to impugn complainant's character by presenting. Her is a promiscuous female who could not be believed, a tactical attack based on now-rejected views of female sexuality. As for the appellate division's conclusion that defendant was given ample opportunity to develop evidence at trial to support his defenses, it is true that the trial court did allow defendant to introduce the photograph of complainant's underwear and argue that she injured herself by rubbing her vaginal area in response to irritation related to the stain depicted therein. However, such evidence is no substitute for an argument premised on the forensic analysis performed. By permitting defense counsel to suggest to the jury that there were alternative innocent explanations for the petechiae, Yet excluding the most viable evidence to support that premise, the trial court's ruling deflated the strength of the defense. See People v. Diaz, People v. Lobensky, see also People v. Wright, People v. Bicotes, cert denied. The prejudice to defendant was compounded when the prosecutor emphasized to the jury on summation that evidence of such alternative theories doesn't exist, despite knowing full well the findings in the precluded forensic reports. We conclude that the trial court's exclusion of the forensic evidence deprived defendant of a meaningful opportunity to present a complete defense, Devro, citing Crane, and constituted an abuse of discretion as a matter of law under CPL 60.42, 5. Because the error cannot be considered harmless under the facts presented, see Devro, People v. DePipo, a new trial is warranted. Far from being a degradation of the protections afforded by the rape shield law as the dissent unfortunately asserts, our decision to apply the statutory exception is compelled by the nature of the evidence presented and the fair trial tenets of the Constitution. Our determination renders academic defendants remaining contentions. Accordingly, the order of the appellate division should be reversed and a new trial ordered. Order reversed and a new trial ordered. Opinion by Judge Lanch. Chief Judge Wilson and Judges Rivera, Troutman and Halligan concur. Judge Canataro dissents and votes to affirm in an opinion, in which Judge Garcia concurs. Judge Singh has took no part. Decided October 19, 2023. Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by Voice Pods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. 
www.nypti.org/law.